Uh, could you please uh, keep your Bibles or your devices uh, open at uh, uh, that passage we just read just now, Matthew 12, verses uh, 15 to 37. Uh, let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege it is that we can uh, read your word uh, and that we can encounter Jesus uh, through it. Uh, we pray that as we uh, hear and see uh, what he's been saying, uh, we pray that your spirit work in our hearts, uh, point us and draw us to him. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you committed the unforgivable sin? Is that even a thing? And if it were, how would you know if you did do it? Uh, in our passage today, we will see some people who did, forgive an did commit an unforgivable sin. What does that mean? Well, as we read this passage in its context, we will better understand what this unforgivable sin is, that we might be warned to avoid it. Last week, we saw how Jesus stood up to the Pharisees on the issue of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one who can give true rest. At the end of our passage last week, he healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, a picture of the wholeness that he would bring at the end of the age, uh, that, that final rest to which the Sabbath was pointing. But remember how the passage ended? In verse 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And verse 15 tells us that Jesus is aware of this. So how is he going to respond? Well, here's an idea. Maybe he can publicize his healing so that more people see he's the Messiah. And then with the crowds on his side, he can, he can start criticizing the Romans. And then once he's got the popular support of the Jews, united them under him against the Romans, then the Pharisees are at best sideline and at worst finished. A good offense is the best defense, so they say. But that is not what Jesus does. Now verse 15 tells us that he withdraws from there. He simply goes elsewhere. And it doesn't mean he stops the ministry he's doing, though. Verse 15 continues that many followed him, and he healed them all. But he also orders them not to make him known. See, he's going to keep on doing the things that Matthew called earlier the deeds of the Christ. The things that the Old Testament said would happen when God would come to save and rule his people. But at the same time, he's not going to use his healing powers for political purposes. Why this strategy? Because he knows God's plan. Matthew tells us in verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament prophesied the time of the coming of this person called the servant of the Lord. And God said through his prophet, Behold, verse 18, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. God delights in this servant. This servant would be given the spirit. Verse 18 continues, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Spirit, that the servant would bring justice to the nations, and yet he would not do it by revolution. Verse 19, 
He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. In other words, he's not going to lead a, a, a radical rebellion. Back in verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break. Smoldering wick he will not quench. A reed is this thin plant that grows in the water like la la. Right? A bruised reed is a reed that's been damaged, but he's not going to snap it off. And the wick is that, that, you know, that, that, that string that thing that burns in the middle of a candle. That, uh, you know, a smoldering wick is it's about to go out. But he's so merciful, he's not going to snuff it out. He's kind, he's merciful. And yet, he, he will keep going until, verse 20, he brings justice to victory, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And this servant will bring justice to the whole world. The Spirit will enable him to do that. But he will not do it in a political, revolutionary kind of way. Jesus knew that he was this servant of the Lord that was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. At his baptism, the father had said, with him I am well pleased. Echoing what God had said about the servant in Isaiah through, through, through uh, 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 God's servant through Isaiah. Right? Verse 18, with whom my soul is pleased. And just as God promised to put the spirit on the servant, the spirit came upon him at his baptism. Abundantly clear that Jesus is the servant, the one in whom the Father delights, the one who has given the Spirit, the one who will bring justice to the world without resorting to violence. Christians must never forget the strategy of our leader and follow the ways of the world. Our religion is not a political one. We don't bring in God's kingdom by revolutionary means. We don't go to war to bring in the kingdom because it's not that kind of kingdom and Jesus is not that kind of king. So Jesus is the servant upon whom is the spirit and the, the, the spirit, the servant, the, the spirit is enabling him to do his servant work and, and Matthew wants us to be very clear about this at this point because the next thing he's going to tell us is how the Pharisees blaspheme the Spirit and the consequences of their actions. Well, here's the background to what happens. In verse 22, a, a demon-oppressed man uh, who is blind and mute is brought to Jesus, and Jesus heals him uh, so that the man speaks and sees. Uh, just be careful. Not everyone who is blind and mute in the New Testament, uh, if, uh, that is caused by demon oppression. All right? There's other... Sometimes there are other examples in the Bible of blindness and muteness that are not caused by demons. But in this particular case, it is. And when Jesus drives out the demon, the man is healed. Now, in verse 23, all the people are amazed. And they say, can this be the son of David? David, you remember, was the king of Israel a thousand years before this. God had promised him that his dynasty would last forever, but there was no Davidic king on the throne. Uh, and so now the people think, maybe this is him. Maybe it's the one that God had promised. And of course the Pharisees are worried that if people believe that Jesus is God's promised king, that's going to be dangerous for them politically. And so they come up with an alternative explanation. They horrifically say in verse 24, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Beelzebul was originally the name of a Canaanite god. But by the time of Jesus, the Jews were using this to refer to Satan. And so in trying to prevent people from believing in Jesus as king, 
They were accusing Jesus of being a sorcerer who was using the evil powers of the dark side. This is a very serious charge. In fact, it would have attracted a death penalty under the law of Moses. Jesus, in verse 25, knows their thoughts. He knows why, he's, why they are saying these things. And he responds with three arguments. Firstly, for Satan to empower him to do what he was doing would be self-defeating. Verse 25 continues, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? have given a portion of his kingdom to Jesus, to, a portion of his, uh, of his power to Jesus to go and fight against him. Uh, imagine Arsenal and Manchester United are playing against each other and you suspect that one of the Arsenal players is actually taking bribes from Man U, right? But then when you watch the match, you see that very player is scoring goal after goal after goal after goal against Man U and then eventually say, cannot be lah. And over and over again, Jesus has been casting out demons. And every time he, has, he does it, he's, he's releasing people from that, that Satan has held captive. Right? What, what sense would it make for, for the devil to give his power for a human being to go and, ransom, to go and ransack his, his kingdom of demons? Uh, Satan is evil, but he's not a fool. Satan knows if his kingdom is divided against himself, it will be ruined. After all that Jesus was doing to destroy Satan's work in the land of Israel, there's no way... He could have been empowered by Satan himself. The second argument he makes is that he's not the only one casting out demons. In verse 27 he says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast about? Therefore they will be your judges. One of my school teachers used to say uh, to us that if you point one finger, you've got three fingers pointing back at you. Uh, and that's exactly the case here. You see, the Jews did exorcisms as well. Uh, and if the Jews did exorcisms, why do the Pharisees not say that they are also using Beelzebub? At least you've got to be consistent in your slander. But they're not. This doesn't negate the fact that there seems to be a big difference between Jesus' exorcisms and theirs. Their exorcisms are probably more elaborate and protracted, more magic-like, than Jesus' simple commands to demons. Because, and they are not nearly as successful. If they were, the crowds wouldn't have been so impressed with Jesus. Jesus seems to do it with incredible authority and ease. He seems to be doing it effortlessly. But rather than absurdly claiming that he's using the power of the devil, they should simply realize that Jesus is far, far, far more powerful than the evil power he is facing. And surely the power of God is greater than the power of Satan. We've already seen that God's Spirit is indeed empowering Jesus to do his servant work. And if the Spirit-empowered servant is indeed at work, then the one to bring justice to the nations was standing right in front of them. And so Jesus says in verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
The third way Jesus shows the folly of what the Pharisees claim is to clarify what he's actually doing. He says in verse 29, Well, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. A number of years ago, a couple from Smek 2 were robbed at their home. Uh, and before the thieves ransacked their house, they, they tied them up. And then they ransacked their place. Jesus, the servant, has been plundering Satan's house. He's been freeing his captives like this, this blind mute man. If you're a thief breaking into the house of a strong man, you're not going to ask him for his help. You're going to say, oh, please help me load the van, my van, you know, with your, with your TV or stereo. No. You're going to tie him up first. Jesus is not going to use Satan's own power to rob him. Instead, he will tie him up, which is what Jesus has been doing. He's been overpowering the forces of evil and releasing people whom the devil had firmly and totally taken under his grasp. And that was a foretaste of the time when he would rescue all who have faith in him from Satan's kingdom and bring them to his own. So when I said before that Jesus is not going to go to war, I was talking about military war. The real war that Jesus was fighting was a spiritual one. Battle of good against evil. Jesus against Satan. And in that war, verse 30, Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. If everyone is on one side or another in that war, which side are you on? Choose your side because that war continues even today on the other side of the cross. At the cross, Jesus won the decisive victory in his death. Colossians 2.14 tells us that God forgave our sin by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. Right? All our sins, Jesus has taken, God has taken, nailed it to the cross, and Jesus has paid the price for it. And by doing so, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. They've got nothing to hold us, against, uh, hold, hold us anymore. Jesus has defeated them. He has bound the strong man in an even greater way than what we see in this passage. And now he is ransacking his house in an even bigger way than what we see in this passage. Because every time someone comes to Jesus in repentance and faith through the preaching of the gospel, that is someone else that Jesus has taken from Satan's clutches, not just for now, but forever. That is why passages like Ephesians 6 which deal with spiritual warfare, are all about the gospel. The sword of the spirit that you fight with is the word of God. Now, exorcism on this plane may still be necessary on some occasions. Now, we see that, for example, in Acts 16. But the main way that we participate in a spiritual battle, the main way that we plunder the strong man today with Jesus is by preaching the gospel. Which side are you on in this spiritual battle? Uh, the Pharisees, of course, as good religious people, would have been horrified to be told that they are on the wrong side. But if they are opposing Jesus, that they are fighting on the wrong side in that war, 
whether they, whether they mean to be or not. That's why Jesus says in verse 31, Therefore, because of this, because they are on the wrong side, the battle between Jesus and Satan, he says to them, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Uh, to blaspheme is to speak abusively or insultingly or mockingly of God. And since Jesus is doing his servant work by the Spirit, and they are saying it is by Beelzebub, they are equating the Spirit with the devil. That is blasphemy against him. And Jesus said it will not be forgiven. Every other sin and blasphemy we have forgiven, but not blasphemy against the Spirit. Jesus says it again in verse 32. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, Jesus himself, will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Why? Well, you see, the servant's spirit-empowered work does not end with his exorcisms. I remember how the Isaiah passage told how Jesus, the servant, would achieve his purposes not by violence, but it doesn't actually say how he does it, isn't it? Except by the Spirit. It's only when you read on in Isaiah to Isaiah 53 where you actually get the details. And there you see how the servant would die for the sins of God's people. Isaiah 53, 4-6 Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted But he was wounded for our transgressions He was crushed for our iniquities Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace With his stripes we are healed We all like sheep have gone astray Which have turned each one to his own way The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all You see, Jesus the servant would die on the cross For the sins of many he would bear our sin and our punishment on himself. Our guilt would be nailed to the cross with him. So that every sin, every blasphemy, even against him, can be forgiven. Because Jesus the servant would pay the punishment for us. The Pharisees needed that forgiveness as much as that deaf mute man needed to be released from his demonization. But they had called the Spirit's work through the servant the work of the devil. And their blasphemous words showed their blasphemous hearts. Jesus connects their words to their hearts in verse 33 to 35. He goes straight on from there to say, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speak. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. The blasphemy uttered by the Pharisees against the Spirit had come from hearts that had persistently decisively and irrevocably rejected the work of the servant empowered by the Spirit.
Hearts that would never turn away from sin and come to the Savior. Hearts that would therefore never be forgiven. It's the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is having a heart that rejects the servant work of Jesus persistently, culpably, and permanently. And that is expressed in words that are used to the Spirit who enables him to do that work. The Pharisees' words betrayed their hearts and they would face judgment on the last day. It's not just the Pharisees. They're one example of a general principle, the general principle of words expressing heart. And so Jesus moves from the specific application of how the blasphemous words of the Pharisees reflect the blasphemous hearts of the Pharisees to the broad principle of how words will be used on the day of judgment. And Jesus says in verse 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, People will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Friends, words matter because they, they reflect the heart. You may not blaspheme against the Spirit like the Pharisees did, but words still matter. Never let anything come out of your mouth, or your pen, or your keyboard, that you would not want to answer to God for on the day of judgment. That includes speaking carelessly about God, taking his holy name in vain. Includes gossip and slander. Includes hurtful jibes and thoughtless words that put others down. Includes derogatory comments that make us look good at the expense of others. Includes how we speak about genuine Christians who are different from us. Every careless word, every idle remark, everything that we say that would be better left unsaid, we will give account. And unless we are forgiven, then our words will condemn us because they show up our sinful hearts. By your words you will be condemned, Jesus said. But he also said that by your words, you will be justified. There are words that justify. The Bible says that when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and that really does reflect a heart that believes that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. That too is words. That is God's promise to us. Words matter. Before we end, let's circle back now to what Jesus said about the unforgivable sin. Because that's sometimes a cause of much anxiety among Christians. People worry whether or not they've committed the unforgivable sin. But remember the invitation from Jesus last week? To me, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Elsewhere, John 6.37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, 
And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Since scripture interprets scripture, we must never interpret one part of scripture so as to oppose another. And so we know that if you do come to Christ, then you can't have committed the unforgivable sin. Because Jesus promises, if you come to me, I will not cast you out. So if anyone here is worried that they might have committed the unforgivable sin, well, you come to Christ for forgiveness for whatever sin you've committed. And he will forgive you. His death on the cross is big enough to pay for it. And if he forgives you, then you know lie. It couldn't have been the unforgivable sin. If someone really has committed the unforgivable sin, they will not come to Jesus. Because they've already made up their mind to reject his servant work and call it the work of the devil. So on a very practical note, if you're trusting in Jesus, you're coming to him. You don't have to worry about having committed the unforgivable sin. There are people, well, there may be people here who actually are still on the wrong side. You know, never worried about that. Never thought about that. Maybe you thought you were neutral. But then you hear the words of Jesus today that if you're not with him, you're against him. Whether you mean to be or not. Maybe you've actually been opposing him, saying terrible things about him. You can still be forgiven. Not everyone who rejects Jesus has committed the unforgivable sin. You remember the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul hated Jesus so much he persecuted Christians until Jesus appeared to him. And Jesus forgave him. Every sin and blasphemy be forgiven, Jesus said. Every word you have spoken against Jesus, the Son of Man, can be forgiven. The servant died to make that possible. He can rescue you, even you, from the clutches of the devil. Only don't keep on rejecting the servant's work. Don't keep persistently going against him. Don't let your heart become so hardened against the work of his spirit that you reach the point of no return. Don't be like the Pharisees who look for excuses to condemn him and ended up condemning themselves. Instead, come to Jesus in repentance and faith. And if you come to Jesus, he will never cast you out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the warnings and encouragements from your word. Thank you for the servant work of the Lord Jesus, who by the Spirit offered himself as the one true sacrifice for our sins and defeated the evil one. 
Thank you for rescuing us from the kingdom of darkness and making us part of the kingdom of your Son. Thank you for the privilege of working with him in his work of rescuing people from the clutches of the devil. Please help us to trust you, your plans and purposes, not to do things our way or the way of the world. Give us hearts that, that love you and love others. And may our words reflect that change. And if anyone here hasn't yet come to Christ in repentance and faith, please have mercy on them. May they not develop hearts that become so hardened that they commit the unforgivable sin. Instead, may they come to Jesus and be forgiven of all they've done. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.